Welcome to another episode of The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Deputy Editor Micah Utrecht. We have already brought up on this podcast recently the tragic death of Leo Panitch, the York University political scientist and longtime Marxist intellectual who was a guest on this podcast less than a year ago, uh, somebody who has been incredibly influential to Jacobin as a publication, arguably the person who is singularly most influential on Jacobin as a project and who has played a really key role in supporting us almost since the very beginning of the project. And he's also somebody who meant a great deal to many of us personally. Um, And so we're still grieving over the loss of Leo, who died at age 75, uh, died of uh, complications relating to COVID as he was getting treatments for cancer uh, in Toronto. And we published quite a bit about Leo in the wake of his death. And we recently published a long and very good and very thorough piece by Jacobin contributing editor Chris Maizano that goes over Leo's entire political uh, career and goes over what some of his major ideas were, major books like his co-authored book with Sam Gindin, The Making of Global Capitalism, takes up what the, the themes and the basic arguments of his life on the left were. And there's really no better place that I know of, no better one-stop shop to get a broad overview of Leo's work than Chris's essay. I will link to that essay, The Marxism of Leo Panitch, in the show notes of this episode. And so for this episode, I'm talking to Chris about that essay. Chris is a longtime contributing editor to Jacobin, union staffer in New York City, a member of the editorial board of Catalyst, and a former member of the National Political Committee of the Democratic Socialists of America. Here's my conversation with Chris Maizano. Chris, welcome back. Thank you. Happy to be here. So I think people who are regular, even casual Jacobin readers and listeners are aware of the recent tragic and untimely death of Leo Panitch, He's somebody who meant a lot to us here at Jacobin. He's actually been a guest on this podcast just about eight months ago, uh, talking about his most recent book. Uh, Somebody who's who's meant quite a bit to us. And you wrote this great essay that's very long uh, in Jacobin that goes over basically his entire career and what the main themes of it were, uh, which we're going to get into here. But before we get into that, why don't we just start with um, Panitch, who he was, what the, uh, the the tradition that he comes from and, and, and was uh, maintaining throughout his uh, life's work um, and why that should matter, why that tradition matters to Jacobin readers and, and socialist activists today. Sure. Um, yeah, I think first I'll start with, you know, something of a personal uh, note uh, concerning Leo and his background and um, Relatedly, the, the the background of his very close friend and collaborator Sam Gindin, uh, you know, Leo and Sam uh, were both products of the like Jewish working class immigrant milieu of Winnipeg, Canada, and you know, Winnipeg was the the crucible of one of the great uh, general strikes of the 20th century, which took place in 1919, which to a very significant extent um, kind of was rooted in. The particular part of Winnipeg where they grew up, the North End, which 
if I'm not mistaken, I've never been to Winnipeg, I'm, so I'm saying the secondhand. Winnipeggers can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but from what I understand, to this day, still has something of um, this sort of long-standing and deeply rooted tradition of uh, political radicalism uh, rooted in uh, uh, you know its immigrant working class and the organizations uh, that it built that you know launched the strike and sustained a very vibrant political and organizational culture that you know lasted for decades uh, after that. And I think it's important to you know kind of situate. Uh, both Leo and, and Sam there, because, you know, in my reading of, of Leo's work and, and the work that he did together with Sam and, uh, you know, many other collaborators, you know, I think it's fair to a certain extent to, you know, read their project and Leo's project is trying to redevelop the sorts of political and organizational capacities uh, that made that sort of milieu that they came out of possible which allowed for the creation and the sustaining of, you know, radical political parties, of unions, of, you know, various kinds of, you know, ethnic and other uh, sorts of uh, social and cultural organizations that, you know, kind of uh, constituted this broad ecosystem or infrastructure of, uh, you know, left-wing and socialist and working class uh, political life. Leo then went on to study uh, as a young person uh, in Britain with uh, Ralph Miliband, who is one of the leading uh, Marxist intellectuals and political figures, I think, uh, of the 20th century. Uh, Miliband himself was a Jewish immigrant uh, in Britain, and um, over the course of you know many decades and many works, uh, he uh, developed and extended many of the key themes of Marxist political theory, particularly in regard to uh, the question of the state, uh, you know, in both its role in uh, a capitalist society and its potential role in, you know, a, a transition to uh, a democratic, a new democratic socialist uh, society. And Miliband, you know, who was mostly active in the middle part of the century from, you know, I would say the 50s through the 70s or 80s, you know, it was only one major figure in this broad uh, kind of intellectual milieu on the British left that also included a number of very great uh, Marxist thinkers, particularly historians uh, like Eric Hobsbawm, who's very well known in the U.S. and elsewhere, uh, E.P. Thompson, whose work I think was very influential in shaping uh, the thinking of, of Leo, um, and I think that comes through in so many of his writings over the years, and a number of others who, you know, were trying to develop uh, something of a more um, democratic, humanistic, uh, you could say, approach to Marxism and Marxist politics that, uh, you know, broke with uh, many of the most kinds of stultifying aspects of, of Stalinism and which were rooted in and relevant to the sorts of societies that uh, they lived in, which is to say Britain, Canada, the United States uh, and other, for lack of a better word, Western advanced capitalist countries that uh, were different from, um, say, Russia, the Soviet Union, China, and other countries uh, that had experienced uh, communist uh, revolutions at one point or another in the 20th century. So what you're saying is uh, that he, you know, we're going to get into the specifics of what he thought, but the sort of top line thing about it is that he was... You know, Miliband and then Panitch after him 
were arguing for something called democratic socialism, which is distinct from both from Stalinism, certainly, but also from uh, social democracy. Uh, that this was a, a political tradition that that really tried to uh, weigh what was uh, wrong with or insufficient uh, about both of those things and, 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 and chart a different course that could act accordingly, that could create a socialism that actually was robustly democratic, but that also would not uh, stumble upon the limits of social democracy. Yeah, I really think that's one of the main themes in Ralph Miliband's work uh, and certainly in, in Leo's work. Um, it comes through very clearly in, you know, so many of the writings uh, and in so many of the more practical uh, commitments that the two of them had. Throughout all of their work, you know, com- you see this engagement with both the very clear limitations and failures of uh, 20th century capital C communism. Definitely, you know, a, a rejection of the most kind of undemocratic and Stalinistic uh, aspects of uh, 20th century uh, communism, uh, you know, and not just in, you know, the Soviet Union or in other places where communist parties and movements had come to power, uh, you know, and they were very critical of the sorts of undemocratic, uh, oligarchic, uh, sclerotic uh, kinds of practices uh, of those parties as well. So they were very, you know, critical of and, you know, attentive to the problems and the limitations of uh, you know, com- communism or Stalinism, uh, you know, take your pick what you want to call it. At the same time, you know, they were also very, very critical of um, the many limitations and failures of the other main current of, you know, the 20th century labor movement of the 20th century working class movement, you know, which is social democracy. Uh, you know, many parties and movements that call themselves social democratic or, you know, uh, call themselves or consider themselves or were uh, labor parties in one form or another, you know, either came to run or be came to the head of many governments, uh, particularly in Western Europe, uh, during the course of the 20th century, or were part of a number of governments uh, in the course of the 20th century. Here at the, in the United States, we had some sort of kind of rough uh, partial approximation of that um, during the period of the New Deal and the New Deal coalition that uh, kind of underpinned it. They, they welcomed many of the, the political, uh, social, and economic gains that were made uh, for working-class people under these, uh, these governments that were uh, fought for and implemented by these social democratic and labor movements, but were very critical of the fact that they tended to not do uh, much of anything to challenge the fundamental prerogatives of capital uh, and its control of the economy in these societies. Uh, they were very critical of what they um, often referred to as social democratic centralism, which in some ways, uh, you know, resembled the practice of so-called democratic centralism uh, in various communist or, or Marxist-Leninist parties and movements. And, you know, they were very critical of the ways in which both social democratic uh, political leaders and labor union leaders um, tended to direct their fire tended to direct many of their energies towards opposing, repressing, uh, you know, undermining the forces that, um, you know, were to their left, either within social democratic and labor parties or, you know, outside of social democratic and labor parties. Uh, you know, one of, one of the most, I think, one of the best analyses of how this worked, uh, you know, I think is the essay that Miliband co-authored with somebody named Marcel Liebman, which is called Beyond Social democracy. It's freely available online. Anyone can go and read it. 
uh, it's, a, it's a rather good uh, analysis of these sorts of questions. And yeah, in that regard, Leo, uh, you know, took up this uh, perspective on both uh, communism and Stalinism on one hand, and then social democracy on the other, and tried to develop and, you know, chart a path that you could call democratic socialism as a distinctive political ideology, as a distinctive political tradition uh, that had its own, uh, you know, that it, because it's rooted in, in Marxism and socialist politics is related in one way or another to these other currents on the left, but is seeking to chart a path, you know, come up with your metaphor between them, around them. And, and in that sense, you know, I think um, Leo in particular and, and a number of his closest co-thinkers and collaborators like Sam, uh, you know, in that sense, we're also... Um, very much products of, you know, the, the various movements uh, and experiments that you could put under the broad banner of, like, 1968. Um, you know, they were part of that generation, and, you know, I think their work is very much informed by all of the leading themes, concerns, and issues that came out of those movements and struggles that you would, you know, kind of put under that banner of 1968, particularly their concern with questions of party and union democracy, uh, their insistence on broadening the politics of the socialist movement uh, to uh, include and integrate, uh, you know, the concerns of what is often, are often referred to as the new social movements, you know, feminism, uh, black liberation, uh, ecology, and others that uh, were not completely ignored uh, by, uh, you know, what you call the old left or uh, by, you know, tr more traditional forms of class politics, but, you know, tended to receive uh, short shrift, um, say, uh, on the older left. I think it's really important to emphasize that this tradition that Leo was a part of, was a key member of the democratic socialist tradition, is one that is recognizing what you said about the limits of of social democracy and the and the abuses and uh, and perversions of stalinism because i think for a lot of people who get newly radicalized in the most recent years a lot of people come into socialism through bernie sanders let's say and they're like well i don't know much about this marxism stuff but they like bernie they like medicare for all they like affordable housing free college etc they, they recognize that war is bad and they so they're they're excited to sort of be on on the this new left, uh, but then they start reading and understanding that actually there are limits to what you could accomplish under a capitalist society. There are limits to the kinds of social democratic gains that you can make under a capitalist society, and there are traditions out there like Maoism and like Trotskyism, uh, which we're not going to talk about today, but that that will make those critiques of the social democratic system to varying degrees of usefulness, I would say. Um, but I think for, maybe you can correct me if you think I'm wrong, that for a lot of radicals on the left, those kinds of traditions, anarchism also, uh, are often seen as sort of having a um, monopoly on those kind of critiques of, of social democracy. Um, but the democratic socialist tradition is one in which that those critiques are there. They they are central to what the democratic socialist tradition uh, is about, and uh, that that is not the sole purview of these other uh, kinds of uh, Marxist uh, ideologies. I mean that that is also central to 
the the tradition of democratic socialism. Yeah, I, I think that um, you you put your finger on something you know pretty pretty important there, uh, and I and because of that, I think it's yeah, I think it's worth underscoring or highlighting this point that you know what figures like Leo or you know Ralph Miliband and and others working in this kind of broad tradition were trying to do was precisely to kind of formulate, um, develop, and uh, advocate for. You know, this, I think, very quite distinctive um, political tradition um, that sought to, um, you know, come up with uh, ideas, concepts, and strategies that, you know, I think first and foremost were would be relevant and useful to socialists looking to build uh, a movement for for socialism and for a different kind of fundamentally different kind of society in the types of in the types of countries that we live in which is to say uh you know advanced capitalist countries with more or less liberal democratic political uh regimes um you know that i think is uh, you know why miliband panich and you know other people working in this kind of broad tradition are so important to read, uh, to grapple with, to criticize where, where, where appropriate and to disagree where appropriate and to, uh, you know, take it up and develop it further. Um, you know, because as, as conditions change, as new political developments take place, uh, you know, I think we're going to probably have to update our perspectives accordingly, but you know, for my money, uh, this, this, you know, tradition, this, this body of thought that's been given to us by, uh, you know, I think Miliband and, and Leo in particular, but, you know, many others as well, um, both from North America, Western Europe, and around the world, uh, is, I think, the best place for, for us to begin. Yeah, I mean, the new socialist movement in the United States has mostly been through the Democratic Socialists of America. And I think maybe some people think that, oh, it's just a coincidence that uh, we, we these new socialists found themselves in this organization called the Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, but it's, I want to emphasize to people that no, like, well, one, there's a reason why a group that was self-identified as democratic socialists was the one that was able to nimbly respond to the changing political conditions. But also it's not just like a weird coincidence that that's like what Bernie called himself. And so that's where all the people who wanted to join socialism went. It's like, this is, this is a political tradition that is, that is worth, uh, claiming, uh, and studying, uh, and wrestling with. So we've only, we've been talking for 20 minutes and haven't actually gotten into what it means yet. So why don't you, uh, start with uh, your 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 argument in the piece about what the three themes of uh, Leo's career were. Uh sure. So, yeah, in the in the wake of Leo's passing, I just thought it would be a good idea uh to just revisit uh, a number of his key works and to draw out uh, you know, some of the main themes uh or issues or or problems that that he addressed um in his work, either on his own or in collaboration with uh with people like Sam Kinden or, or many others uh, over the years. And yeah, in the course of my rereading of, of many of these texts, I think three, three broad themes, uh, you know, continue to just jump out in piece after piece. Uh, and I think that they're all, they're all very much related to each other and they form kind of a coherent whole. They kind of form the, the, the core themes or concepts of of Leo's Marxism, of Leo's democratic uh, socialism. And I think those three core themes are uh, the process of class formation, uh, the key role of political parties in particular, uh, facilitating that process of class formation, 
Uh, and the third one is this question uh, of the state, uh, both in its role in you know, creating and reproducing the conditions that make capitalist society possible. I think Leo's Marxism really, you know, it begins in many, in many ways at, at the beginning. You know, it, it begins with many of the, the, the themes and concepts that you come across in reading some of the most classic works of socialist and Marxist politics, including, uh, you know, the, the Communist Manifesto of 1848. And I think specifically the, this particular um, uh, kind of preoccupation with the with the with the question or the problem of class formation really flows from a lot of uh, a lot of those earliest uh, works. And I think specifically it, it flowed from Marx uh, Marx's and Engels's um, really important, but I think often overlooked um, proposition that the, the the immediate or the the first aim uh, of a socialist movement is. Uh, the formation of the proletariat into a class. And that kind of formulation, I think, implies that classes are not, you know, uh, they're not pre-existing. They're not simply just um, objective economic categories. Let me just interrupt you quickly on that. I found it so funny after the Bernie campaign was over that there were lots of liberal pundits who were proclaiming things like, well, the Marxist theory of elections has been proven false because... Their theory was that Bernie Sanders would run a robust working class campaign, you know, speaking to working class issues, and he would get all the working class on board naturally through that whole thing. And that didn't work. Looks like that disproves this Marxist argument. It's just like, you know, slamming your head against the wall reading this because, like, that's not what the Marxist argument about anything that has to do with the working class is. That's not how classes come together and begin to fight for themselves. That's not how class formation. There has to be a process of class formation that takes place uh, that is complicated and involves being pulled multiple directions and, and everything else. But nobody uh, who is a Marxist argues that that's an automatic process. No, no, certainly not. Um, yeah, I, I share your frustration with that kind of spate of, of pieces that came out um, because, yeah, it, it certainly betrayed a lack of any kind of serious engagement with, uh, uh, you know, any of the huge body of like thinking, writing, etc. on these on these kinds of questions. And if anything, it didn't uh, it, it reflected uh, either consciously or unconsciously the very kind of mainstream approaches to, um, you know, both academic political science and kind of popular journalism and punditry regarding American politics, you know, in general, but, you know, electoral politics in particular, which, you know, kind of slices and dices the electorate up into various, uh, you know, kinds of market segments or uh, communities, if you, if you want to use different language. Uh, and, you know, says that XYZ community has, you know, XYZ sets of interests or concerns. And, um, you know, these are like static, almost naturalized kinds of categories. Um, but yeah, that's not really, that's not really how, um, uh, you know, a Marxist conception of class uh, really works or, you know, is supposed to work. People are extremely complicated and complex. And, you know, while you know, obviously, uh, you know, kind of more straightforwardly economic and class related issues are going to be very important because everybody's concerned with how they're going to make a living. It's not the only way that people define themselves. You know, there's there's all kinds of different things out there from gender to religion to national origin to uh, to, to race to whatever the case may be that are, you know, uh, very important to uh, to individuals and groups of people. Uh, and which constitute 
uh, a big, uh, you know, part of their, their personal identity and how they kind of behave politically in the world. You know, those sorts of identities or commitments that people have can, you know, kind of move along, you know, can go with the grain of, you know, what we would think of as, you know, their, their class interest, or it could cross cut it. Um, and even those things aren't necessarily, uh, you know, automatic or set in stone, uh, you know, whether, whether those sorts of things reinforce or cross cut or, and contradict, um, you know, the, the class identity, uh, either that they hold or, or you're trying to get people to hold, you know, that is also subject uh, to politics uh, and to contestation. So, yeah, I, I totally agree. That whole kind of uh, discourse uh, around uh, the supposed failure of uh, Marxist uh, electoral theory or something was uh, very frustrating. Um, but, you know, not really all that surprising, I suppose. So talk a little bit more about what Leo actually uh, argued about this process of uh, class formation and maybe also who he was arguing against. Sure. So, yeah, as I was saying before, you know, in this kind of general conception, class isn't so much a thing, um, you know, as a process or, you know, a, a relationship or a set of relationships. That in turn means that, you know, class formation is never a process that's, you know, linear, that just goes in one direction. Uh, or is uh, complete. And, you know, classes in capitalist society from the beginning, uh, you know, have continually been organized, disorganized, and reorganized across space and time. And, you know, to me, one of the main stories of the last 40 years is the disorganization and reorganization of working classes, uh, you know, here in the U.S. and, and uh, around the world. Um, and in this regard, you know, Leo's conception of class bears, I think, the very clear influence, as I said before, or as I alluded to before, many of the great British uh, Marxist and socialist historians of the mid middle part of the 20th century, uh, in particular, E.P. Thompson and his, you know, very monumental and important study, uh, The Making of the English Working Class, which was published in the early 60s. Uh, and in the preface to that book, which is uh, quite well known at this point, um, you know, Thompson uh, defines class as, um, you know, a historical phenomenon. And yes, I'm quoting from it right now, as he says, I do not see class as a structure, uh, nor even as a category, but as something which in fact happens and can be shown to have happened uh, in human relationships. And that's the end of the quote. So again, class in this view, it's something that's not just given to us by the sort of abstract mechanisms of the economic system, but it's... Um, also something that's made and remade through conscious human action and, um, and interaction. And people like Thompson and then, you know, Miliband and then, you know, Leo uh, subsequently, um, you know, what they're grappling with are, you know, these very sorts of uh, static um, and stale uh, conceptions of class and class politics that, um, you know, really uh, became very common uh, you know, in, in Marxist thinking and Marxist politics, particularly, um, you know, after, you know, uh, you know, Stalinism really sort of took hold, um, you know, within kind of the broad sort of, you know, communist movement in particular, but kind of exercised its influence more generally on, you know, Marxist and socialist thinking. And they were trying to push against uh, those sorts of, um, those, um, you know, overly objective or overly abstract or overly, um, you know, structural, if you will, kinds of uh, conceptions and explanations and try to reintroduce um, you know, politics and, and conscious human uh, activity uh, and action 
um, you know, in Marxist and socialist thought generally, and then, you know, more particularly in this connection, um, are conceptions of class uh, and of uh, the process of, of class formation. Um, and yeah, like I said before, I think that this, this orientation of Thompson's in particular, uh, you know, comes through again and again uh, in, in Leo's work uh, over the years. In another part of uh, that preface to the making of the English working class, uh, Thompson says something along the lines of, uh, you know, it's not very useful to always be trying to make these very kind of finely knit sociological nets, uh, is the phrase that he use, uh, that he uses to, um, uh, you know, he says we shouldn't try to like obsess over uh, the particular like, um, you know, like sorting people into various uh, locations in the class structure based on their particular occupational situation or like drawing these finely grained distinctions between, okay, who's in the working class and who is not. Uh, he says, that's no, that's not as important. Th worrying about those things is not as important as developing kind of the most broadly based and capacious uh, concept of, you know, who's a member of the working class and who can contribute uh, to the working class movement um, as possible. Now, of course, you mentioned in your piece that th that is a, one conception of class. It is you know, held as against the more deterministic and rigid ones of, of conceiving class. Uh, but it's also important to mention that thinkers like Leo never kind of totally unrooted themselves from from believing the working class to be the central agent in making change in, in society. I mean, there were leftists who moved away from that, who, you know, straight up, like Andre Gore said, you know, farewell to the working class. And, and that, you know, that, that was that is a current that has been you know, since the 60s onward, uh, d dominant in some parts of the left. And and so Leo was both uh, rejecting these rigidly deterministic versions of uh, visions of how, how we should think about class, uh, while also still remaining fundamentally rooted in the working class as the central change agent. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in an essay like um, The Impasse of Social Democratic Politics, um, which Leo wrote in the mid-1980s, uh, and which is aimed primarily at criticizing Eric Hobsbawm uh, and his arguments that he was making at the time um, concerning the you know supposed decline of the working class and the decline of of, of class politics, not just in Britain but um, you know kind of in uh, the West uh, more broadly. Uh, you know what he argues against there, and you know his his contention is that people like Hobsbawm and then uh, some of his co-thinkers uh, around um, a British Communist Party journal called Marxism Today. Uh, you know, Stuart Hall was one of these people, uh, as was Peter Mandelson, if memory serves me correctly, who became a very important figure uh, in New Labor uh, under Tony Blair. What he objected to is what he called uh, their sociological reductionism. And, you know, according to, to Leo, uh, you know, this was, um, you know, they were engaging in, in this kind of sociological productionism by just going straight from changes in the socioeconomic structure or changes in the occupational structure to uh, the crisis of working class politics without bringing the, the political parties, um, namely the Labour Party <clears throat> in the case of the UK, uh, you know, into the analysis or into the equation uh, as a mediating factor. So, you know, his argument in, in this, kind, in this um, piece, one of his main arguments in this piece was that yeah, working class politics was certainly in crisis in the late 70s and the early 80s. But in order to explain why that was the case and, you know, in turn, how to figure out ways of getting out of that crisis, 
you know, you also had to look to a very significant extent to the practice, uh, the political, the ideological, the other, you know, and the organizational forms of the working class movement itself. And, you know, what it was doing or not doing, uh, as it were, to um, maintain, reinforce, and further this this project of, um, of class formation that was so central to, to his work. And you're right, in that sense, you know, he's, again, trying to chart this, you know, middle course or different kind of path between, uh, you know, these sorts of thinkers like Hobsbawm on one hand, um, and then um, thinkers like Ernesto Laclau and Chantal Mouffe on the other, uh, who in a book like Hegemony and Socialist Strategy basically said that, um, uh, you know, everything is discourse, uh, everything is ideology, um, politics is not really rooted at all in, you know, so sociology or social structure or, or the economy. And he's arguing against that perspective as well. He doesn't deny that they had very important things to say, you know, about um, uh, the role of ideology or of discourse uh, informing political subjects uh, and in the process of class formation. Um, but he rejected their idea that, um, uh you know, poli you know, politics, discourse, ideology was unmoored from any kind of underlying social structure or economic structure. And that, you know, the working class um, now had to be, or, or the working class movement now had to be demoted, uh, as it were, from its kind of uh, central or leading role that it had always played in um, uh, socialist and Marxist politics, had to be demoted from that role as kind of the leading force for social change to just kind of one movement among many uh, in this sort of movement of movements for radical democracy that uh, Leclerc and Mouffe and people like them called for. So yeah, that's in, in that piece, the impasse of social democratic politics and in many other works, you know, he's trying to, you know, kind of differ, argue against and differentiate um, himself and his perspectives um, from all of these sorts of schools of thought, which, um, in many, in many ways were misguided, but did try to, you know, grapple with and think through um, what by the late 70s and early 1980s very clearly uh, had become, you know, a real crisis of working class and socialist politics. Yeah, I mean, what you're saying is that on this question of class formation, like he tried to do in many aspects of his work, was to, you know, say, uh, create the third way between these uh, you know, between conceptions of class that that weren't working, just like he was trying to uh, build this democratic socialist tradition or, 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 or contribute to it uh, in a way that avoided both, you know, what was wrong with social democracy and what was wrong with Stalinism. Yeah, I, w I wish Third Way had not already been taken by the likes of Bill Clinton and Tony Blair and uh, all of them. Uh, uh, I think that phrase has un uh, unfortunately become pretty uh, besmirched by those by those sorts of folks were taking it back. Uh, but uh, yeah, that, that's, I think, in, uh, pretty clearly I th what, what he was um, uh, trying to do uh, was precisely to uh, chart a middle path, a third way, you know, um, you know, to avoid the scylla of um, Stalinism on one hand and the charybdis of social democracy on the other. Uh, Which you know. before we move to the next uh, section and keep talking about the specifics of his work, I mean, that's one of the things that I have found so rewarding about reading both him and Miliband is that you get the sense that these people are are really they're not relying on old stale dogmas to analyze the current 
political situations. They are they're they're, they're really grappling with how to uh, move past w- whatever impasse that we're currently in, and you you get that sense in reading him, and you get that sense in reading Miliband, and that's maybe the thing that I appreciate most about them. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, I think what always comes through is like for them, you know, Marxism, historical materialism, whatever you want to call it, um, you know, is like a method of analysis or kind of a system of thought or a set of concepts that, um, um, you know, they, they, they give you a sense of like where you should um, start looking for explanations or, you know, start um, looking for, for your analysis, but don't necessarily tell you where to end up. Um, and, you know, I think you know, far too often, uh, on the left, uh, you know, this sort of thing is not just limited to the left, but far too often on the left, um, yeah, you know, you know, ideologies or systems of, uh, of thought or methods of analysis like Marxism, uh, you know, you know, the way that they're practiced or implemented or, or, uh, advocated for too often kind of get that, uh, backwards. Uh, instead of like, yeah, giving you a sense of where to begin, but not necessarily telling you where to end up, uh, you know, too often it tells you where to end up. Uh, and then, you know, you try to kind of fit all of your facts uh, uh, to fit that conclusion. So the next section of your essay uh, is about the role of the political party. And you used a quote from Leo years ago in an essay in Socialist Forum, the Democratic Socialists of America publication that you're the editor of. Uh, that had is so pithy and has stuck with me ever since I read it. Uh, this idea that class does not create uh, party, party creates class. So can you talk about what Leo wrote about parties and specifically that idea of party creating class? Uh, sure. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, it's useful to start here with a little bit of discussion of unions, of, of trade unions, of, of labor unions. Uh in order to kind of differentiate them from from parties and what these two different kinds of organizations do. Um, You know, so the trade union or the labor union, this is the most elemental uh, form of workers' organizations. Uh, You know, whenever you find uh, capitalism or capitalist exploitation, you're going to find something like a trade union. It's more or less uh, inevitable. Uh, You know, they represent the most immediate and material interests of their members, and, you know, they tend to be the main vehicle through which Class conflicts, class struggles are, are waged on a daily basis uh, under capitalism from, you know, from the worker side. Uh, but despite, you know, this kind of element, elemental status of the, of the trade union, despite their, their importance, uh, you know, unions are unfortunately, you know, they tend to be very severely limited uh, by their scope um, and their function. Uh, you know, particularly in a country like the U.S., um, they represent particular groups of workers who share a particular employer and have a particular set of related uh, interests. So, you know, in other words, um, while unions emerge from the working class, um, they do not, and, you know, usually they can't, um, represent the working class as a whole, Uh, you know, typically only a section uh, of it. Um, You know, Leo's very close friend and and co-thinker, Sam Ginnon, has written a lot um, on these questions and his work in Socialist Register um, and elsewhere uh, is really worth grappling with um, on on these sorts of questions because I think he gets gets a lot of this um, uh, quite right. Um, So historically, um, you know, if if it's true that, uh, you know, unions come out of the working class, but they, they can only represent a section of it, they can't represent the whole thing. Uh, that means that you need some sort of other kind of organizational vehicle in order to try to represent the whole thing. 
And just to be clear, when you say represent the whole thing, it's like uh, a, a body that can fight on behalf of the interests of all of the working class, not just the members of your union and your industry that pay you dues or whatever, but like a, a vision that that says that the working class, like that's that the, the world that we should be fighting for is one in which the working class is lifted up and in power, etc. Yeah, exactly. Because if you you know look at um, you know the history of the 20th century. You know, there's only been a few countries uh, in the world where, you know, half or more of the overall kind of workforce or the overall working class were members of unions. Um, you know, in Scandinavia, you find very high rates of unionization that encompass the vast majority of the working class. I think Belgium, you know, is long flirted with something like a 50 percent uh, unionization rate. Uh, but in most other countries, um, you know, the rate of unionization and of union membership never got anywhere near that. You know, here in, here in the U.S., the highest uh, we ever got was something like a third uh, of the overall workforce uh, in the early part of the 1950s, and it's just been downhill since then. So, yes, you're right. Uh, you know, uh, in, in this case, a party would be, um, you know, trying to articulate and, and fight for the interests of um, every working person, uh, regardless of whether they were a member of a union uh, or not. Um, and, you know, in impasse, uh, that essay that I, I referenced before in, in a number of us, uh, other works, you know, Leo argues that it's precisely this kind of mass working class political party, uh, that, you know, came out of working class movements, uh, uh, in the late 19th century and then through much of the 20th century. Uh, that's kind of this mediating factor that makes it possible, uh, to create a, a, a collective political subject that you can call the working class out of the mass of individual working people that capitalism gives us, right? So in this sense, the, the basic role of a, of a party, uh, and you know, I'm, I'm lifting this quote from, from the piece, um, and this is from one of Leo's works, I believe this is from Impasse. You know, the basic role of, of a party then is um, what he says here, this quote, the reinforcement, recomposition, and extension of class identity and community itself in the face of a capitalism which continually deconstructed and reconstructed industry, occupation, and locale. Um, so that's the end of the quote. And this kind of conception of political parties and their purpose, it goes, I think, far beyond uh, mainstream uh, political science uh, definitions or mainstream uh, reporting and commentary uh, and journalism on politics which really just kind of tends to reduce parties to little more than like competing teams of office seekers, right? Um, but for Leo, a party could, especially a party of the working class, could or should be something very different. Um, you know, for him, a working class party worthy of that, of that name, of that designation, you know, it had to develop the capacity of its members to exercise power through collective participation in party life uh, in an ongoing process of political education within uh, that kind of mass working class party and its kind of affiliated and associated organizations. So yes, in that sense, as you said at the beginning of this kind of uh, part of the discussion here, it's parties um, that organize classes and not so much uh, the other way around. Uh, I think this is a, a, a main theme of, of, of a lot of Leo's work. It's rooted, as I said before, in you know much of the classic uh, literature and thinking and also practice of, of socialism going back very far back into the mid to late part of the 19th century. Uh, and, and it's really, I think, what Leo was was very concerned with uh, in, in much of his work, uh, both on his own and then with others. And it's important to mention, obviously, that this conception of the party 
I mean, as Americans, we have little space to even understand. I mean, when we when when we say party in the United States, it means something very different from the kind of parties that exists in most of the rest of the world. And so, uh, because I mean, for various reasons, we have this two-party system made up of these two parties that are this weirdly strung together coalitions of pretty disparate elements on both sides of the aisle. Um, and they don't, neither one of them certainly has that kind of like political education arm, let's say, like they don't use the party as a way to, uh, you know, bring in huge numbers of activists and to provide them political education. And, uh, I mean, th these are, this is the stuff of what parties are supposed to do. Uh, and, and, and that, that is what a, a, a real workers party, a left-wing party would, uh, be able to, would have to do in order to, uh, be, be functioning properly and in order to change the world. We need that and we don't have that in the United States. And that's why we talk so much about it because it's a really essential for, thing for us to have and yet we're blocked from being able to really develop a robust institution like that. Right, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, and as you, as you alluded to here in the US, we, because of the nature of our party system, um, you know, we face a lot of, I think, very unique difficult challenges in trying to build uh, the kind of organization that can, you know, take on, uh, effectively take on a lot of these sorts of tasks. Um, you know, here in the U.S., uh, parties really aren't uh, membership organizations the same way that they are in a lot of other countries. You know, somebody can't, you know, really join and pay dues to and go to meetings of, you know, the Democratic or Republican parties or uh, really any of the other parties. To a significant extent, these things are like state-sponsored, uh, you know, ballot lines um, and, uh, that uh, people, you know, show up to. Uh, they, sh they show up on election day, they step into a voting booth, and they, they cast a vote for, you know, an individual who happens to, you know, bear the brand uh, of that uh, particular party, whether it's D or R or something else. So, you know, the challenge for us is, you know, how, you know, for us here in the U.S., um, is how do we go about uh, trying to build this sort of organization, this kind of party that Leo and you know so many others on the left have been so rightfully preoccupied and concerned with? If you know the very nature of the party system uh, that we have here doesn't really give us much room uh, to do so, how do you deal with that dilemma? It's something that I don't think we've ever really quite figured out uh, here in the U.S. Uh, and I think it's going to continue to be a central, uh, you know, strategic and, uh, and political question for us. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of various ways that you can think of uh, trying to, to address this question. You know, one is to try to uh, just say, just organize a new party, a in completely independent party right now. Uh, you know, that's certainly something that uh, people have tried to do many times over the years. Uh, unfortunately, it's never really worked. Um, and, you know, I think that that has to do to a very significant extent with the nature of the, the political and party system we have in the, in, here in the U.S., where we have this very unique combination of, uh, you know, what's very arcanely uh, known as first past the post uh, um, and single member districts, combined with the fact that we have a presidential system. Uh, it's very unique. It tends to, you know, kind of shoehorn all political tendencies and conflicts into two kind of big parties uh, and tends to squeeze out um, any kind of space uh, for, for, you know, parties outside of those two kind of big tent catch-all uh, uh, Democratic and Republican parties. 
You know, another way to try to address this issue or problem is, you know, what a group like DSA has been trying to do, I think, over the last few years, which is to, you know, build an organization that takes on a lot of these uh, or tries to take on a lot of these functions uh, associated with the, cl- with the process of class formation, you know, things like political education, things like uh, just sort of everyday community uh, organizing uh, and the like, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, a working class or, or socialist political party would do in another system, uh, you know, but without, you know, running our own people on our own ballot line. Uh, completely distinctive from either of the two uh, major parties and and instead trying to kind of maybe separate out those two sort of different sets of functions, Uh, you know, education and organizing on the one hand versus like the actual act of like running a candidate for office on the other. Um, So, you know, that's another way of trying to go about it. I think we've had some success along those lines over the past few years. Uh, I think it makes sense to try to continue um, using that approach and seeing how far we can take it. Uh, but yeah, I, I totally agree with you that um, this is a tough task in general, and I think it's doubly difficult uh, for us here in the U.S. And Leo was engaged in these questions not as sort of theoretical debates. He was very intimately involved in the British Labor Party, for example, even though he was Canadian, and involved in the decades-long fight of the left within that party, including through some pretty dark times uh, to democratize the party to make it more of a left-wing party wrestled with the uh which the the um, limitations that Miliband also uh, emphasized that that maybe this was this party would never be the uh, vehicle for uh, winning socialism but then it was also intimately involved in the rise of Jeremy Corbyn over the last few years and that wing of uh, socialism within uh, the Labor Party. So can you just talk a little bit about those uh, kind of concrete uh, examples of, of how he used his uh, analysis of his intellectual theoretical analysis of parties and how, how that the rubber hit the road with his engagement with the Labor Party? Sure. It, was, it wasn't until after uh, I wrote the piece and it got posted that I realized that uh, I didn't mention at all uh, you know, Leo's participation in, um, uh, you know, efforts at building uh, a democratic socialist movement in his own country of Canada, which he which he was, uh, you know, deeply involved in uh, for, for uh, much of his life. Uh, you know, in, in, in particular, um, you know, of note, I think, uh, was his uh, participation uh, during uh, the 1970s. Uh, in um, a movement uh, that's kind of popularly known as the Waffle. Um, uh, I, I won't even try to get the story correct as to why uh, this, this kind of radical wing of Canada's new Democratic Party was called the Waffle. I don't, I don't remember the whole story. I think it stood so for something, try. right? Somebody was like making fun of them for like for like waffling. Well, if you could call your formation the waffle, wouldn't you choose to? I, take I probably that would. I, I love waffles myself. <laughs> I try to eat a toaster yeah, waffle uh, every day. Uh, but uh, you know, this was kind of a radical movement or, or current uh, within Canada's um, NDP, the New Democratic Party, which is uh, kind of the main uh, social democratic and labor party uh, in Canada, at least in, in English speaking Canada. Uh, and, uh, yeah, he was part of that movement to, uh, you know, radicalize and democratize the party, uh, and, uh, make it more of a consistently socialist, uh, uh, and left-wing party. Um, they were, uh, eventually expelled, uh, and did not succeed, but, uh, it, it was an important effort, uh, along these lines, um, 
uh, in the Canadian left and, and within the, the New Democratic Party uh, in Canada. Uh, but yes, uh, you know, I think for, for most of us, especially those of us outside of, of Canada, we're probably more familiar with Leo's writings and Leo's uh, uh, practical engagement with um, the British left, uh, uh, particularly the, the left uh, in and around uh, the, the Labour Party and, and the Labour movement uh, in Britain um, over the years. Um, you know, this is a, a product of him studying in, in, in the UK uh, with and, and, and under Ralph Miliband. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, it's also a product, I think, of the, the, the radicalization, uh, the move to the left um, that took place um, in the Labour Party uh, and then within many of the Labour and Social Democratic parties uh, of, of Western Europe. Uh, during that time, you know, this was kind of a, a, a period of ferment that was not just limited to the UK or to labor. You see similar things happening in the French Socialist Party or the German Social Democrats or the Swedish Social Democrats. And uh, even to, you know, you can argue to a significant extent in the American Democratic Party. Um, you know, so this was something that was happening broadly uh, within kind of the traditional parties of the Social Democratic and labor left um, at, at this time. And yeah, from, from, from that period of the late eighties, uh, the late sixties, excuse me, uh, you know, through, through the, the early part of the 1980s was this period of intense, uh, kind of political contestation within the British labor party, uh, that pitted, uh, kind of its more traditional, uh, elements, um, you know, particularly among the, uh, the parliamentary labor party, the PLP and this kind of new generation of um, working class and socialist and left-wing members that, uh, you know, entered the Labour Party uh, and kind of its uh, affiliated movements and organizations, uh, you know, in the wake of the, the social and political conflicts um, and upheavals of, of the 60s. And the, the very unlikely uh, standard bearer of, of, that, of that movement was, was Tony Benn. And why was he unlikely? He was unlikely because, you know, he was born... I think literally born in Westminster. He was the son of an aristocrat, uh, a viscount, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, who was also a Royal Air Force officer and uh, a liberal party politician who I think uh, went over to the Labour Party. Uh, so, you know, he's brought up very much in this kind of cloistered Westminster political world. Uh, he served as a minister in uh, Howard Wilson's uh, 1964 Labour government. Uh, and that was a very important uh, experience uh, for Ben. Uh, it was very disappointing. Uh, and it radicalized him and made him see the need for a different kind of labor party aimed at carrying through a, a complete uh, transformation of the British state. And this kind of general project was something that I think he very, he most clearly summed up uh, in a speech that he gave. I forget where he gave it or when or who he gave it to. But uh, in this speech, he said that, you know, our long campaign to democratize uh, power in Britain has uh, to first begin in our own movement, you know, in the institutions of the Labour Party and in the, the trade unions that were affiliated to it. So, you know, from the 70s and then from the Thatcher era, you know, through the to the end of New Labour, Ben and groups like the Campaign for Labour Party Democracy uh, and something called the Socialist Campaign Group, uh, they fought to make... Uh, the party's parliamentarians and their and their ministers accountable to the to the to the actual rank and file members of the labor party at the base and to give both them uh and social movement activists outside the party 
a real role in developing and implementing party policy, and all of this with an eye towards, you know, making the parliamentary system uh, actually work for people and to serve their ends and their needs and their goals, uh, you know, rather than the kind of more narrow and self-interested uh, ends of, of the people sitting in parliament themselves. And in this regard, you know, Ben and, and the people in the Labour New Left um, who are around him, they also linked the issue, this issue of party democracy to union democracy, which was, you know, very obviously something that grated on, to, on the British union leaders who were very accustomed, unaccustomed to hearing these sorts of criticisms that been, you know, routinely made of them uh, in public. Um, and much of this criticism had to do with the way that under the party's old rules, which don't exist anymore, uh, you know, union leaders could wield blocks, big, huge blocks of votes at Labor Party conferences, uh, by which one union leader could cast like thousands of votes on behalf of all of the union's party members. Uh, Obviously, people like Ben and the Labor New Left were very supportive of the unions and their battles against employers, uh, you know, in the battles against the, the various wage restraint policies of both Tory uh, and Labor governments during that period. Uh, you know, but they were very critical. And this is kind of where this concern with the role of the party in class formation and, you know, the third uh, kind of main or recurring theme in Leo's work, which is this question of the state. Uh, I think comes into play because for both Ben uh, and Panitch, uh, as well as this kind of like uh, new left in and around the Labour Party and in and around all of the various uh, you know parties of social democracy and the labor movement uh, during the late 20th century, these two questions of party democracy and the transformation of the state were inextricably linked uh, with each other. And it really, uh, you know, formed the core of, you know, both the theoretical and strategic thinking uh, that they put out there, as well as uh, kind of their more practical political agenda as well. Now, before you get into that, I was just going to say, I mean, this is true of his discussion of the state, true of his discussion of class formation and parties. I mean, obviously, all of this is, uh, he, he didn't write about it much explicitly, as far as I know, but it's a, it's a, a real pushback to what the dominant trends on the left were from the era of like the 90s and 2000s, you know, an era in which anarchism was pretty dominant. And there was a, you know, rejection of these these fuzzy old institutions like parties, certainly of, of parties like the Labor Party uh, in the US, of course, you know, no engagement with the Democratic Party and no vying for any kind of, uh, you know, electoral, uh, you know, pushing for electoral power or, or any of that. And, and, and so obviously Leo was making an argument for decades that was a very lonely time for him to be making that because it was not what was dominant on the left in the U.S. or Canada or the U.K. or anywhere else. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, obviously Leo and, you know, people around him, his co-thinkers, were very supportive <clears throat> of, um, you know, the social movement organizations and, you know, actions that... Um, were very prominent um, and defined uh, kind of the North American and Western British and Western European uh, left, you know, during that period from the 80s uh, into the 2000s. Uh, you know, whether we're talking about the anti-globalization, so-called anti-globalization movement, or, you know, the environmental movement, feminist movements, queer liberation movements, um, um, you know, struggles for racial justice and the like, very supportive of these sorts of movements and demands. 
the 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 criticism however that um you know leo and uh kind of his his co-thinkers had however was you know you can protest uh you can stand outside of the state and protest uh forever uh and maybe you'll win you know some concessions here or there but you'll never be able to fundamentally change uh kind of the the, the basic rules of the game uh the basic tendencies or the laws of motion if you want to call it that of the, the society you live in uh, until you actually contest for and win uh, political power. And that, in turn, uh, you know, requires uh, going into politics. Uh, and by that, uh, you know, he meant um, party politics, electoral politics, uh, and, you know, standing uh, uh, in elections uh, in order to try to win uh, government office, uh, to try to win, uh, you know, in uh, positions of, of influence and power within the state. Uh, so that you can actually see uh, these kinds of demands uh, and programs through. Crucially and importantly, and I, I, I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit more, into this a little bit more uh, soon. Uh, you know, the goal, however, wasn't to just kind of like catapult individuals uh, over like the walls of of the state uh, inside, so that they like go and they do their thing, and they're the ones that make the policy changes and make everything better. You know, they that wouldn't work either. Uh, you know, you, you had to figure out some way of um, entering the state, of winning some measure of governmental power and wielding it uh, to try to change society while, uh, to the extent that it was possible, remaining linked to uh, and uh, in contact with uh, movements uh, and organizations on the outside of the state um, both to prevent people on the inside from getting completely cut off uh, and to just kind of succumb to their own sorts of uh, uh, self-interested uh, goals uh, and to um, make sure that um, you didn't wind up reproducing the various ways in which both social democratic and communist or Stalinist uh, movements uh, kind of just concentrated or centralized power uh, in the hands of party leaderships, in the hands of state functionaries, who then would rule uh, in the names of uh, the people that they were supposed to serve, uh, but in reality, um, kind of reduce them to a, a sort of indefinite uh, tutelage uh, in which the people at large didn't really get uh, much of anything to say uh, in terms of how this new socialist or social democratic society was supposed to be run. So lastly, let's talk about uh, his work on the state, which was, I guess, kind of certainly uh, I mean, the last major book that he wrote in the kind of capstone of his career in some ways, The Making of Global Capitalism, which deals with this, uh, with this question. So talk about what he uh, wrote about the state. Leo and, um, you know, Sam Gindin in particular, who he co-wrote The Making of Global Capitalism with, always rejected this uh, dichotomy or this distinction uh, that's very common in both academic uh, discourse and in a lot of journalistic or popular commentary as well that kind of pits markets and states against each other. Um, you know, you found this all the time, particularly in the 90s in the heyday of like globalization boosterism, um, you know, but I think it all it, it, it persists to this day. Uh, you know, they rejected that distinction um, between markets and states that I think both neoliberals make uh, on one hand and kind of left liberals 
make at the other, uh, make on the other. Uh, you know, for neoliberals, it's it's uh, you know the market that's good and the state is bad, and for left liberals, it's the state that's good and the and the market that's bad. You know, that's a that's uh, you know I'm I'm doing some violence to to the to each side's views to some extent, but you know in general that's that's kind of where where they're coming from. So Leon Sam and, and you know others kind of in their orbit, they never accepted this this framework. They rejected it, and you know they devoted much of their their energies, their talents, their careers. Um, to demonstrating the proposition that nation states, uh, you know, far from being marginalized or superseded in the era of global capitalism, which is something you encountered a whole lot, especially in the 90s. You know, so many people were claiming that, uh, you know, nation states were over, they were done. Um, so they rejected that. And they said that far from being marginalized or, or superseded or over, uh, you know, states were instead the main architects of this system of global capitalism that really came to fruition after the fall of the Soviet Union uh, and, uh, you know, the coming of the so-called end of history, you know, uh, capitalism and liberal democracy, uh, you know, supposedly the only game in town, according to people like Francis Fukuyama. So over the course of many works, many years, um, you know, they made the case, and I, I think they were right, that, um, you know, capitalist interests re rely on a world of states, a world of kind of, and a system of, of nation states uh, to create the framework that they operate within, uh, and on the American state above all, and in particular to kind of superintend, oversee, and coordinate uh, the management of this global capitalist system. And yeah, the argument that they make in the making of global capitalism in particular uh, is that the, the U.S. state in particular, you know, which they call the American empire, uh, it's in the subtitle of the book, uh, has restructured, it didn't just restructure itself, uh, you know, during the course of the, the post-war, the post-World War II decades. It restructured other states as well, all around the world, uh, through economic, political, and military means uh, in order to make this thing that's very abstractly referred to as globalization possible. And here, in this sense, I think we come back to some of the themes that we were talking about earlier in this, uh, this discussion. You know, this is all with an eye towards making the case that, um, you know, in their view, capitalism or the spread of capitalism to, to every corner of the planet, uh, you know, after the, um, the end of the Cold War, it didn't result from some kind of like natural or inexorable unfolding of capitalism's natural laws and tendencies. Uh, but rather, it was a conscious political project that was brought about by human agents and institutions that human beings built and created, um, you know, obviously, uh, as the Marx quotes go, uh, Marx quotes goes, you know, not under conditions of your choice or not as you please, but you know, it's something that you you bring about through through conscious uh, 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 agency and, and institution building and political action. Uh, and yeah, I think, as I said, in that sense, uh, you know, Leo and and Sam, particularly in that book, but in a bunch of other places as well. We're really developing uh, and extending Ralph Miliband's uh, really important work in Marxist state theory that, you know, he advanced in books like The State and Capitalist Society or um, this book called Divided Societies on, on Class Systems and Capitalism uh, or in his last book, which is very good and I think uh, somewhat underappreciated called uh, Socialism for a Skeptical Age. Also has the best cover of any socialist book ever. I mean, it looks like a romance novel. Yeah, it looks something like either a romance novel or like um, the like plaque of that like footprints um, 
uh, story that I'm sure many pe- people's parents uh, had on yes. their walls of their houses <laughs> growing up. Uh, great cover. I hope it, it it stays there in future versions as well. But uh, but yeah, particularly in that in that later work, uh, the making of global capitalism, I, I really do think that they were building on and developing and refining uh, a lot of the work that that Miliband was doing, you know, way back in in, in the '60s and uh, uh, and. Uh, uh, what 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 also came out of Miliband's uh, very well known and very fruitful uh, debates with uh, with other Marxists, particularly Nikos Polantzis, um in the seventies and early eighties as well. What are the implications of their argument about the state and the continued salience of nation states in the global capitalist system for socialist strategy? I mean, th- that's a kind of political intellectual argument that has plenty of import in its own right but obviously for those of us who are reading their work primarily to figure out what the hell we should be doing on a day-to-day basis what does it mean for socialist activists so for me you know the takeaway from that kind of argument is that you know if the state or you know kind of the system of nation states was um central in developing you know this global capitalist system that we live under then it also means that if you want to unmake it, if you want to undo it, if you want to build a different kind of society, then you also uh, need to, um, a central part of that process is going to be, um, you know, winning uh, and using uh, the power of the state. So in that sense, you know, un- unlike, uh, you know, much of the left, particularly during in the 80s, 90s, and early part of the 2000s, when a certain kind of anarchistic politics was very po- popular and which, you know, more or less rejected um, the need to win and exercise state power in order to change society. They were defending uh, this this notion that, yeah, it's actually very important to, to win government power and use it uh, to change the rules of the game, to build a new kind of society, to build a just and democratic society. So I think um, that's one one. Uh, I think, political and intellectual takeaway from their work. Related to that is that, um, you know, what I think flows from that is if you think that it is important to uh, use uh, the power of the state to change and reshape society, um, how exactly are you going to go about doing that? And then I I think this is where uh, Leo uh, and uh, Sam and a number of other co-thinkers had quite a lot to say and you know i think made a, a lot of um you know very important and what i hope will be enduring uh contributions and here again we see this attempt to kind of chart a middle path or a third way or whatever you want to call it uh between on the one hand the idea um uh or kind of the practice say of um kind of more traditional social democratic or labor movements which basically sought to take control of the existing state apparatus through winning elections or what have you, and um, just wielding it more or less as it is in order to achieve your goals or implement uh, your program. Or, you know, uh, so that's kind of the traditional approach of social democracy or the labor movement to the state on one hand. On the other hand is kind of the more Leninist uh, uh, conception of uh, smashing the state. Uh, you know, you don't want to go in there and, you know, kind of win elections and um, win government uh, office or power within the framework of the existing state structure because it's uh, kind of uh, inher- an inherent aspect of the capitalist system or the class structure. And you can't use it uh, as a tool or a lever of uh, kind of socialist uh, uh, reconstruction. 
So you had to just uh, do away with the whole thing. You had to scrap uh, kind of parliamentary government along with the administrative and bureaucratic apparatus of the state and replace it with, you know, workers' councils uh, and other things of that nature uh, that, you know, in their view were um, kind of more consistent uh, with the practice of a, of a new kind of socialist democracy. So they rejected kind of both of these views um, and kind of strategic orientations um, and said that, you know, the, the, the question here isn't either kind of just laying hold of the state as it currently exists and wielding it on one hand or kind of just smashing it and getting rid of the whole thing uh, on the other hand, but figuring out ways uh, to the extent that it's possible to transform the state uh, in the process or as part of this broader um, project of, of social transformation. And I think that it's this um, that is really central to the kind of democratic socialism that we were talking about at the beginning of this discussion, uh, and which I think is really central to Leo's work. Uh, and I hope uh, is something that, um, you know, those of us who, um, you know, come, 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 come in his wake, uh, continue to develop uh, continue to extend and uh, hopefully to put into practice. Well, there's much more that uh, could be said about Leo's work itself, despite the fact that you wrote, uh, I think, about 7,000 words about it. You did your best, but, the, you know, he's, he's somebody who leaves behind this uh, enormous body of work that we as socialists who are going to carry the torch forward of class politics and of, and of socialism uh, should be uh, turning towards, should be looking to. Um we we got into this on one of our earlier Sarah and I did my our producer Sarah did a, a year end uh, wrap up and I have to say that his death really affected me uh, deeply because of how important he was to my own politics to Jacobin as a project uh, to the support that he gave us as a thinker I mean and you know it's sort of sounds silly to say but. Miliband is probably the single most important thinker for Jacobin, and uh, Leo was this direct line, literally, to Miliband, uh, in that he was his student at the London School of Economics, and was really, you know, he kept the, that torch burning of Milibandian-style democratic uh, socialism, and so we're, we're, we're deeply uh, indebted to him for that. He was also just such a champion of Jacobin as a project, uh, you know, wrote for us many times, as well as for our journal Catalyst. Had an essay in Catalyst just, I think, two issues ago. Um, did interviews for us, came on our, our podcast whenever we would ask him, came on the YouTube channel. And it was also just a, a, a truly beautiful human being. And uh, one thing that I thought a lot about is that there weren't very many people who kept the the class politics and, and the politics of socialism alive through the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. And I'm very grateful to the people who did, because we would not be here, certainly not in the same way, if they had not done that. But in order to do that, it kind of takes a certain personality. I mean, you have to be, you have to thrive on being this, you know, despised minority with these ideas that are a total joke that nobody will ever care about. Um, you know, uh, becoming a Marxist in the 80s, uh, like now, but especially in the 80s, it was not a ticket to, like, fame and fortune and a, a, a great, you know, you're not, you're not going to become some kind of superstar uh, through Marxism. Uh, and so uh, people who did that often have certain personality characteristics that, that allow them to sort of 
get through in their lives, and they can be kind of uh, difficult to be around sometimes. And uh, Leo had very strong opinions and would fight with you about things, but he was also just an incredibly... He managed to maintain that level of warmth and just just full humanness that you don't always get from you know thinkers on the left and so that just sort of adds to the tragedy to me of his death so uh, unexpectedly of covid yeah i i could not agree more um and yeah i hope that um you know people like us who are left to to carry the tro- the torch and to keep uh uh, these sorts of uh, these politics and these ideas alive and to continue developing them. You know, we take up not just that political and intellectual mantle and responsibility, but yeah, as you said, you know, try to do whatever we can to emulate, um, you know, the way that he moved in the world and uh, dealt with and interacted with, with other people. Uh, you know, in the interactions that I, I had with him, either you know, via email or uh, remotely or in person. Uh, you know, what, what was always so striking about to me about him was just how utterly unpretentious the guy was. You know, here you are, you're dealing with someone who is, you know, a, 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 an important thinker, uh, a well-known academic, uh, and someone who had just a wealth of, you know, personal and political experience to bring to bear, who's willing to, you know, just give so much of his time uh, you know, to people who are just trying to figure out what the hell we're trying to, to do and what the hell we need to do to, um, you know, rebuild a movement that had really gone into a, quite an eclipse uh, for quite a long time. And, you know, to me, that was just, uh, you know, I really appreciated that. And, you know, everyone that I, I, uh, that I know who also knew Leo in some capacity, I think, really really appreciated that about him. You know, this was somebody that you could talk to about these very weighty and important and lofty concepts, but you can also talk to him about, you know, the basketball game uh, that you were missing uh, so that you could, like, sit through another panel discussion that you had an obligation to go to uh, or something like that. Uh, yeah, as you said, just an incredibly warm uh, and uh, generous uh, person, who, uh, you know, I will, I will certainly miss myself, and I know that everyone who knew him uh, and was uh, close to him uh, will also miss. One other thing that should be said about him is that if you read his work, you, you, you know, this you're not reading empty boosterism for whatever it is that movements, that unions, that the left is doing. I mean, he's it's it's rigorous and he's he's very critical throughout it, but he managed to to do that to maintain that in his work while also just being wildly like on fire for this new left that has been reborn in the United States over the last five years. Megan Day told me a story about speaking at a conference once and she was talking about uh, what was going on in DSA. And I think this is maybe 2017 or 2018 and sort of giving an overview of DSA and uh, you know, trying to be critical, of course, but also like emphasizing to a group of mostly, I think, socialist scholars that uh, this is a new DSA. This is a very important development. We're we're doing a lot of things very right, actually. And she said that she kept hearing somebody in the audience. He, she could see them standing up and cheering and being like, "Here, here, yeah!" Like like hooting and hollering from the audience. And the lights were on her, so she couldn't quite like make out anybody in the audience. But this person kept jumping up and down like during her talk and was and was hooting and, and clapping at her. 
And when the panel was over and she got uh, off the stage, she realized that it was Leo Panich who was in there uh, just yelling his head off and then talked to her for the rest of the night about about the developments in DSC. He was very interested in hearing the nitty-gritty details of what was going on in the organizations, what the struggles were, the challenges, but also the triumphs. And that really speaks a lot to, to who he was. And it's just a great, a great tragedy that a, that a person like that won't be around to see whatever else it is that we're able to accomplish in this newly reborn socialist movement in the years to come. Couldn't agree more. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. Thank you. The Vast Majority is produced by Sarah Hurd. You can always reach out to us at vastmajoritypodcast at gmail.com. And please, if you are not already subscribed to Jacobin, subscribe to our print issue or you can get an online version at jacobinmag.com slash subscribe.